As we approach the 40th anniversary of the Medicare hospice benefit, we stand at an important reflection point to evaluate end-of-life care and map its future. In this new series, we gather leaders and thinkers from a range of disciplines to explore our needs at the end of life, how they have changed over time, and how our care models need to adapt. We will explore societal relationship to mortality and what impact the growth of hospice and palliative care has had on how we meet the challenges of death and loss. Our guests will share their perspectives on the policy, legislative, and healthcare delivery changes that are needed to enhance how we care for those with life-limiting conditions and ensure wellness at all stages of life. We hope you enjoy these insightful conversations and that they inspire positive change in how we care for one another at the end of life. Join me in this deep and meaningful conversation with Dr. Janet Bull as we explore how best to relieve suffering at the end of life and her reflections on what death has to teach us about living. Janet's perspective is profoundly unique and is informed by being a witness to both the beginning of life as an OBGYN and later at the end of life as a hospice physician and chief medical officer of Four Seasons Compassion for Life. It is end-of-life care that Janet has devoted the second half of her medical career. She's a longtime leader in hospice and palliative care, serving as past president of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, and conducting significant research on the role and impact of palliative care in our healthcare system. Janet shares what her life's work has taught her about how we care for the dying, how it has evolved over time, and what remains our greatest hurdles to ensuring good deaths. We explore what influence the growth and acceptance of hospice care has had on our societal relationship to mortality and where we have yet to go to ensure quality end-of-life care. I hope you enjoy this expansive conversation and that it enriches your thinking about how we can better serve those suffering with death and loss. So welcome, I'll say for one time, Dr. Janet Bull, but I'm just going to call you Janet. <laughs> okay. Please call me Janet. So, so I've been so looking forward to this conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much for, for being um, uh, available and willing to talk about what I think is uh, really important issues, but also just to share your story because um, I admire you greatly and, and you've accomplished a lot and, and done it in a way that, that again, I, I really admire. So thank you for making the time. Well, thank you for having me, Meg. I'm yeah. really excited about this series. Um, I, I think it'll be wonderful to, to give to the broader audience. Yeah, no, exactly. And so you are my my very first guest on this new series that we're doing called Perspectives on End-of-Life Care, an exploration of the past, sort of present and future. And and my thought on doing this is both sort of personal because I am very fascinated by the issues that we're going to talk about today from a personal level, but also I think it's critical from a sort of professional healthcare delivery. I'm an advocate for hospice because I think we're on the precipice of something new. And we have, if we want to look at from a bright-sided perspective, an opportunity to really shape that and to be sort of our own makers. And, and you know, what have the lessons of nearly 40 years of the Medicare benefit taught us about what's important and and whatnot, and so so I, I think this is um, will be a really fun conversation and is a passion project for me. So so um, I wanted to jump in and 
because you have such an interesting past, which when we were preparing for this, I didn't even know. And I was like, this is so perfect that of course, Janet should be my first guest because she was, she had this amazing story that led her to, to hospice. So, so can you give us a, a, a little bit of that story? That's so interesting. Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. So I was, I had a private practice as an obstetrician gynecologist in Atlanta for 11 years. And during the last year of practice, uh, my office manager, who was in her 30s, uh, developed an autoimmune disease. And over the course of about four months, um, uh, died. It was a pretty tragic death in a um, very medicalized unit, uh, the ICU in Emory, uh, where she was surrounded by her large family and, you know, had the typical ICU uh, death. And, and during that time, um, we had always joked about opening, opening up a practice down at the beach together. She was, she was a dear friend and, um, and, you know, it was a complicated time in her life. She had two teenage daughters, was going through a divorce. And so it was messy as sometimes it is. And that uh, day that she died, I walked in and her blood pressure was sky high and, um, uh, the, you know, she was not speaking at that point, but you could tell she was in distress by her breathing. And um, so I did a med- I sat down and did a meditation with her and took her to the, our favorite place that we go, which is to the, to the beach down in the panhandle. And uh, after that 10 or 15 minutes, it was just remarkable. Her blood pressure dropped about 50 or 60 points. Her pulse wow. came way down. We started telling stories. And I left and I got a call two hours later that she had passed. And wow. you know, I think on some level, I think she has been the, the part that, you know, sometimes you can't explain the mystery of life. And yes. death. But she's been that person that has on some level um, really piqued my interest in, in working with dying people and really seeing that there was mystery and, and, you know, uh, things that we couldn't explain and how important it was to bring the human aspect um, into taking care of the dying. And, and at the time, you know, I, I, as I reflect on my career in OBGYN, you know, I, I see so many similarities between a, a good birth and a good death. Um, people generally prepare for a good birth. Um, they have, they're surrounded by family. There's usually uh, joy and laughter and tears and intimate moments. <laughs> and it's those same things that we see when we are surrounded by somebody who's dying. When family members come in, everything quiets down. You know, the only thing that's important at that time is being present with people. And so, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to be on that journey whether people come into the world or they leave uh, the world. Mm-hmm. And, and also it's a very, very intimate time to share with um, family members. Um, sure. It's just one of the milestones that we see in life. And so, so and when you, when you say that, which I think is a fascinating observation about those, the similarity in the, those ingredients, but I still feel like culturally we don't accept like, you know, birth is joyful and then 
death is morbid and we don't talk about it, which to me, you know, sort of perpetuates this. And is it a barrier to good deaths? Because people still, so you talk about preparation, which, you know, makes total sense. And I think BJ Miller wrote a book about, you know, preparing for, for death. And, (laughs) you know, I ordered it and Friday night, (laughs) I'm starting to read it, which I mean, only a true hospice person does that, right? (laughs) Let's get into this reading about preparing for death. But I think it's incredibly important. And do you think we've made um, strides in, in sort of that acceptance of of death and that you do you see people better prepared? I mean, you've been in hospice now decades. Do you, have you seen movement there? Not certainly not as much as I would have liked to see. I, you know, I think we're still a very death denying society, uh, yeah. especially in America, um, very independent and very, you know, e- even with co- even with COVID being right in the face of this mm-hmm. pandemic, when people are dying very quickly of all ages, uh, you know, it, it's really brought the reality of death, right? It yeah. can happen. Uh, it happens to 20-year-olds, even though it's not very common. Uh, it's happened to all ages. And I think, you know, we still live in this death-denying uh, society. Now, I will tell you from many experiences with people at the time of death, especially in hospice care, uh, it's been some of the most meaningful times in their life, the mm. times where they felt the most growth in their life, whether from a patient point of view or from a family member point of view, wow. where all the all the garbage that kind of we all, you know, get all rattled up about. It doesn't matter so much anymore. Mm. And the things that really matter are the people that are the closest to us. And, you know, um, we, we teach uh, the immersion course uh, to providers. And one of the exercises we have them do is we take them on the simulation of their own death. Mm. It is a incredibly powerful exercise and you kind of have to rip up, you know, you write the 10 things that are most important and yeah. then you start having to rip them up one at a time as you get sicker. And um, there's, um, rarely a dry eye uh, after that exercise is done, and people just open up and start talking about, gosh, you know, what was the, what were the things that went first? And and most ah. of them are work, <laughs> work <laughs> where we spend, you know, like ninety percent of our working yeah, yeah. hours, you know. Um, uh, but you know, the things that generally are those things that stay with you the most are the people you love, um, uh, your faith or with your belief system, uh, nature and art, those are the kind of things that really hang on and, and really give life meaning. And so um, we, we see that a lot as we care for patients in hospice um, as, they, as they really prepare for death. Mm-hmm. And I remember early on, I had this wonderful patient who taught me so much um, she was an actress and she had a boing voyage party for herself. 
<sighs> and uh, when she she had a terminal diagnosis of metastatic cancer, and she went around the world on a cruise about eight months before she died. She had giving away parties where she gave away things that were really important to her, and, and to the very end, um, and wow. we promised her at her death, she told us exactly what she wanted to wear, and we were all standing around the bed. We addressed her just the way she wanted to go, and it was just it was just such a beautiful experience of somebody yeah. who was able to look at this transition and say, you know, this is this is what's important to me and this is how I want it to go. And we were able to help help her with that. So do you think, because that's a really powerful story, and do you think, how, how do you think that she was able to approach her death that way? I mean, is it is it because of how she lived her life and and sort of like an acceptance that life is very uncertain and that that gave her because if and maybe this isn't a worthy goal of, of of and maybe there isn't moving the marker but you know it what I would hope is that when we are touched by people who die well that that can change our relationship to both how we live but then how you know if we're going to change the death denying kind of <laughs> we got to change the living right it's like um and so what was it about her that you think she was able to do that uh as opposed to say well death is really the worst thing that could ever happen to me and it's like well but it's going to happen to us all right I, I do think people generally die how they live so people mm. who confront the realities that's in front of them uh, tend to, uh, you know, look at death in, in a similar way. And, you know, she was that, uh, she made it easy for everybody who was around her because she was so positive and optimistic, even about her own dying experience. Um, even the fact that she was dependent on other people. You mm. know, I think that's a hard thing for all of us, right? Uh, is when we lose the ability to care for ourselves, the ability to be able to ask for help. And I think that's one of the gifts um, that I've seen over the years uh, with people who are sick, who can say, hey, it's okay to ask for help. And, you know, on the other hand, it's a blessing to be able to give to people. And so yes. um, I think there are lots of lessons that can come at any part of your life if you're open to them. And that's one of the mm. lessons that I think um, dying well is, is to be able to accept uh, the fact that you often will become dependent on others. Mm. Uh, you, you know, the other analogy to kind of OB is that we kind of go, go through the same stages that we go through when we're born, you know, we're dependent on others. We have to learn how to walk or crawling or, mm -hmm. and, and it happens in reverse yeah. as we get older, you know, uh, there's not many people before they die who don't go through some pay uh, some stage of yeah. dependency, yeah. Um, dependency, maybe for ambulation or uh, those kind of things. Well, so, and, yeah, and and I think you you mentioned our individualistic society and how in one of the reflections I I've been you know pondering is is um, has that worsened over time and you know from a sociological perspective I think over the last 
40, 50 years, there's less community ties, maybe like we used to have all these fraternal organizations. I'm a lion. I'm a this, I'm an optimist. And then, you know, religion maybe played a bigger role in people's lives. And there was community in a lot of different forms where there was more giving and taking. And, and now, and I see it in myself, like, well, I wouldn't want to burden my neighbor and ask for an egg, right? <laughs> like I should just go in my car and go drive and get the eggs because I, I don't want to sort of burden others. And that just seems like intrusive. And, and so I, I guess, do you have any thoughts about that? Like, do you think maybe death is harder because we're not as interconnected with one another and we feel this this burden kind of idea that that I think is a challenge in death. Do you think that that, that has become worse over time? Yeah, I, I think there are several things that have happened. Um, I think, um, you know, in the 60s um, with um, the making of ventilators and uh, dialysis and all these life belonging therapies that came into being, it almost got to the point that we just medicalized it all. Mm. So you get sick, you go into the hospital, well, you can be put on a, a kidney machine. And it doesn't matter if you're 85 or 90. We're still yeah. sometimes putting people who don't have great quality of life prior, uh, they're getting some really aggressive therapies. And I think what that can do is prolong suffering. Mm. Rather rather than actually prolonging life. So I'm, I'm more interested in some of the longevity. Uh, you know, I think it's great if we can live well with good quality of life. And when mm -hmm. that quality of life really gets diminished, then we really have to ask, why are we doing some of the things that we're doing? But I, I think having that technology available, it became kind of the default. Just yeah. like, just like uh, the, you know, um, resuscitation is a default. Everybody gets resuscitation. You have to get a DNR, a do not resuscitate. Yeah, order, yeah, right? yeah. Even in somebody who has maybe very, very poor chance of responding to restarting the heart and being put on a breathing machine. And so I, I think um, part of the, that, that has been, that has been a huge piece. Uh, the other thing, you know, we, we take care of people in acute hospitals. We don't have a lot of community health centers in this country like mm -hmm. they do in other uh, countries. And so, and your doc, even your doctor that you may have gone to for 20 or 30 years, don't necessarily go to the hospital anymore. They don't have yeah. hospital privileges. So they're run by hospitalists who don't know you when you come in. So they may not understand what you value, what you believe in. So again, you get put on that medicalized track of kind of doing mm -hmm. everything. Um, and so I think we've lost the touch with community health. Um, we also, you know, move around a lot. And so uh, often we mm, see yeah. families that are really isolated um, from their kids and they're trying to make medical decisions based on healthcare and maybe three or 400 miles mm -hmm. away, fitting in between weekends, you know, mm -hmm. their busy work schedule. And so I, I think there are a lot of challenges, um, but, but I do think there has been some of the loss of community and mm -hmm. um, the ability to depend on one another. So do you, do you think 
that when people are making their healthcare decisions, they're making them for others and not for themselves? Well, I, I think there's certainly a movement that we're trying to, you know, have people make their own healthcare decisions while they're cognitively able to do that. Um, but it's, it's amazing. There's still so many people that who are, you know, over 65 who are in the Medicare age group that don't have healthcare decisions made, haven't made those decisions Mm -hmm. for themselves. And it gets, you know, I think some of the forms that we use, the most forms and the post forms and (laughs) just confuse people, right? So if you have this condition and this happens, do you want this? You know, if you get infected, do you want this antibiotic? Do if you, um, you know, if your kidneys no longer work, do you want to be put on dialysis? So there are lots of scenarios uh, that people have to go through. And I don't think they mm-hmm. always have an understanding of those. So do, do you think when, because as we're talking about these barriers to, to good deaths, do you think that, that um, I guess, is it the difficulty of feeling like you're letting people down? Like if I don't say yes to dialysis, I'm letting someone down. I mean, there's this idea of, death, you use the word death denying or, or death being a failure and failure for, for the patient. Right. I mean, and, and, and obviously your role as a a physician is, you know, obviously barriers there is sometimes, you know, death is considered the failure of medicine. And then, you know, do patients feel like they're failing, right? Because it's like, I didn't, this treatment wasn't successful. I'm a failure and I need to do this X, Y, Z. So I don't feel like a failure. And I wonder if there's just compounding factors there that, that really challenge people because, it's hard to have honest conversations about this. And, and yeah, I mean, obviously very difficult for your family to see you go, but, but also I think that, you know, people maybe not understand the full picture of what they're doing. So yeah. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, so there's often this elephant in the room and everybody's afraid to talk about what the elephant is. And so they'll talk about this treatment or this treatment. The elephant is somebody's impending death. Right. And so I think one of the things that we do really well in palliative care is we navigate and we facilitate those conversations among family members. So we can talk about the elephant in the room. So now that your mom has been diagnosed with metastatic cancer, you know, what does that bring up for you? You know, what, what are, her goals? What are the things that are important? What are the things that matter most? And really having open, honest conversations about the what's behind the cancer, which mm. is the fact that she's going to die, right? And, and what does that mean? And, mm. and how do you get through that period of time in a way that you can acknowledge that and be brought closer together? Mm. I, I think a lot of um, patients put up a good front because they don't want to upset their family yeah. members. And so, you know, often when you get them one-on-one, they'll tell you, I know I'm dying. Yeah. 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 
And so you just kind of have to be able to have that conversation and facilitate that. Um, and, and once that happens, the, it, the things shift. There's a huge mm. shift that takes place. And instead mm. of looking at trying to, you know, race after this therapy and this therapy mm-hmm. and this therapy that are often going to cause more suffering than benefit, um, they can focus on the things that we do in hospice so well, which is, mm-hmm. you know, having tender moments together, um, talking about things that, you know, matter most, spending time together, looking at old photo albums, at old videos, um, you know, um, kind of doing a life story, somebody's life mm-hmm. review, and, and really um, talking about the impact that that individual had on this planet. Yeah. No, incredibly important. And it, it, what struck me as you're talking is, is you know, the innerness of, of someone who uh, knows they're dying, but that, that us being able to almost be an advocate for them and being able to share that and get their family okay with that. Because I, I think, as you said, the person living it probably all we know understands it in a completely different way than the family members but but hard to to because again this idea of like i'm letting people down and and you don't you know your kids you don't want to leave that you know i mean and, and and so i think having someone that can facilitate that conversation that you as the dying person doesn't have to say hey you should really be okay with it i mean it's like you're trying to take care of yourself as well as then how do you bring other people along? Cause I'd imagine that can be one of the challenges of feeling like your family's going to be okay when you're not here and how do you help them with that? Yeah. So, you know, I think the first thing is you never presume that you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you always ask. And the other, the other thing uh, about these conversations is I always feel like I'm entering into a space of the sacred. Mm. And, um, and so I kind of, you know, before I went into a patient's room and I was going to have a, 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 one of those, you know, harder conversations, um, I always kind of asked that just that I would be guided, you know, yeah. be able to say the right thing, to be able to listen well. Um, to hear kind of what was coming even behind the words or to be able to ask yeah. about that. Um, and, you know, kind of to know when to push in and when to kind of pull back mm. a little bit. Um, but it is, um, and, and again, the same way as birth is kind of this miracle that occurs. Yeah, um, Death is kind of has that same kind of sacred quality around it. And I think that um, just acknowledging that and being mm. witness to the magic and mystery that takes place um, and just kind of opening those conversations up with patients and families. Uh, it, it really uh, goes a long way, I think, to people helping to, to kind of accept what's happening. Yeah. Um, speaking of that, that mystery and just the unexplained, I'm, I'm doing this 10-part um, webinar series through Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation on death and grieving, and it's super cool because there's people all over the world that are on this call, so it feels, you know, as we're living through COVID where I can't travel and have new experiences, 
you know, you see all these people like they're in Italy and all this stuff. But but the the session we just had last week was about like symbolic language and like dreams and and things like that. And just, you, you know, I think as a very analytical person, as a as a lawyer, right, it's like clearly everything's rational, right? You can explain everything. And you're not the typical lawyer, Meg. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Because how many people, you know, are hospice lawyers and, and embrace that and call themselves that. But, but I mean, I think it did open my, my, um, my world, my view and, and more comfortable with that. Like the things that I don't understand and the concept of mystery and, and my uncle Daniel, who I was very close to, he, um, he was a priest uh, and he died about three, four years ago, really important person in my life. And this person I had really deep and meaningful conversations with, and he lived all over the world and and he worked with lepers in korea and he was in africa and did lots of really amazing things with his life and um he i have some of his diaries and so it was just the anniversary of his death this past weekend and he loved lamb and so eli made lamb my husband and then we read some of his um his diaries and it's one really interesting um, to read them because he was really an intellectual kind of guy. And so um, he was reading certain things, books that he references in there that then I can go read. And I feel like I'm still in conversation with him, but he also had very rich dreams. And so it, one of the stories, entries in the diary was about this very vivid dream he had. And the last time I saw my uncle Daniel, which of course you never know it's going to be your last time, he was telling me about this very vivid dream that he had. And, and then the last thing he left me with that um, has really propelled me over the, the last uh, few years is, Meg, I think you need to live more with your heart and less in your head. <laughs> and so, yeah. like, um, which it means a lot of different things to me, but has been just, I don't know. It's like, how does this make sense? Like, it was like exactly what I needed to hear. You know, I was just probably turning 40 at that point. And I don't know. It just, it's really weird about how things happen and like like synchronous cosmic yes yes exactly that's the word they were using in this um uh yeah in this elizabeth kubler watch thing so anyway just when well, you're no, saying I, that yeah i have to tell you this story so you know at this time this office manager died uh, Elizabeth Cooper Ross was coming into town in Atlanta and I had been devouring all of her books. So uh. we went to hear her speak and I was, I was so moved that was, so I was very intrigued, mm. not only from having this death experience with somebody that I was close to, but listening to her conversations about, uh, her work with dying children and, and dying people in general. And so I really, her work was incredibly instrumental to me mm -hmm. as a clinician, um, even especially with the kids I took care of um, mm -hmm. and drawing pictures and, you know, yeah. just a lot of symbolism uh, to her work and, and, and her work with dying people. And so I think, you know, it's that mystery uh, that, yeah. that you can't explain. Always. Yeah. 
No, exactly. And something that struck me um, too through her work. So the, the first session was learning more about her and I actually didn't know all these things about her and just how radical, I mean, right. When we say, Oh, things haven't changed that much. And you're like, what she was doing was totally radical. And like people were spitting in her face and burning down her house. And like, just because you, you wanted to, to essentially bear witness and, and ask dying people what they need. I mean, it just, so I think, that perspective is really important to think about, well, we have come a long way. I mean, there's an Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine now, right? I mean, and there's you. And and so, and that we have gotten much more mainstream and and that's incredible. And so, I mean, I think that that I don't want to minimize the progress that, that we've made, um, but, but I guess also, as we have gotten more mainstream as uh, an industry, you know, have we had it to make any trade-offs? And what trade-offs might those be? I guess, do you have any reflections on that? Well, you know, I, I think I'm positive about where we're going. I mean, I think that palliative care, hospice care, you know, is probably the most highly rated um, package or benefit that Medicare recipients get, right? Beneficiaries. Yeah. It's, it's very, very, um, you know, in all the surveys and stuff, it, it scores top notch. Um, but it's defined by a set benefit. And with all the, you know, as it's grown as an industry, the amount of money we have to put in for keeping compliant, responding to legal keeping. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we almost all have to hire lawyers. Yeah. I mean, let's yeah. face it. it. It's it's when I started, you know, we thought uh, only ZPix went to these horrible organizations. And now <laughs> yeah. I don't know anybody who hasn't had that. Yeah. Um, exactly. Uh, but I do, th- I do believe that as we move into value-based care, what you're going to see is, you know, I, we're, we're already seeing the, res- the positive response that palliative care brings uh, to patients with serious illness. And I think you're going to see an increase in the, not just the medical model of care, but the psychosocial, um, spiritual piece as well that's so important and so different with the kind of care that we we deliver in both hospice and palliative care, where mm-hmm. our social work colleagues and our chaplain colleagues are by our side, because we know 40% of hospitalizations are due to social determinants of care. And if mm-hmm. we address behavioral issues, now with COVID, it's, uh, I just read that it's like, I don't know, four times as high the rate of depression and oh. is, is, has really um, increased. And so we have to look at that whole person as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said. And I think as we move more into value-based where it's not dependent on quantity, right? More you do, the more you get paid, but really on outcomes and our models are more aligned with having, you know, uh, social work disciplines and, and chaplains that we will be able to do a better job uh, mm-hmm. for that whole family unit of care, the caregiver, the, and the patient and family. So, and I, I, I'm so glad you're saying that. I'm glad that you're hopeful. Um, it's a slow know. process, though. Yeah. Well, so my, I would like. Yeah. Well, so my, my concern is, is that when we say outcomes, right, it's like 
are we even willing to measure the outcomes that actually matter, right? Even when you look at the quality metrics we measure for hospice, it's like, well, did you get an assessment within so many days? Again, not that these things aren't important. I mean, was your pain managed? But no one's saying like, you know, how many, you know, spiritual visits did you get? Or, you know, how, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I want to believe that we can have outcomes that aren't based on improvement, like, right, like nursing home, part A, SNF benefit, you know, it's like, well, you can continue to get this or home health, like if you're improving or something, there's sort of always this bend, like you're getting better and that that is the measurement of good is better in this like physical sense, but not better in like an emotional, psychological sense. Um, and better might be, and I, you know, and that means I'm, I'm dying. So I, I just, how do you think we measure that? And how do we convince the people that are paying for us? I mean, obviously, the cost sure. differences, it sort of speaks for itself. But what do you think yeah. should be the measures? Well, I think there are things that we can measure. You know, we've talked about this goal, concordant care. Like, how do you measure if somebody, uh, if, if, your care aligns with their goals that they have mm. most to them. So if somebody, for instance, says, Hey, I want to stay at home. I don't want to go to the hospital. To me, dying at home is would be compatible with goal concordant care, right? Oh, okay. That's what the patient identifies. It's important. And, and it is, it does get tricky uh, when you work in the field of quality measurements, really trying to, um, be, be and part of the reason it gets tricky, uh, for instance, with this measure is that we know that goals change over time. Mm, yeah. Right? As people get sicker, their goals may change, right? But most people want to be free of of suffering, yeah. And that suffering can come in physical symptoms, uh, psychosocial, you know, depression and anxiety, uh, in existential distress. So really making sure that we're measuring quality uh, in those domains is important. Um, and things like, uh, you know, uh, either hospice utilization, which most people kind of consider the gold standard of end of life yeah. care, or, um, you know, days in hospice care, uh, mm -hmm. peace of death. Um, so I, I think there are some measures and, you know, you have to just start. And, yeah. you know, and, and then <laughs> just start. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. You gotta, just you, start. Yeah. And you got to get agreement and a consensus. And, you know, part of, you know, part of the work I've been involved in uh, previously with a global palliative care quality Alliance was helping to define some of those measures. And now we have, you know, one registry, the palliative care quality collaborative that's um, it should be open this fall. Um, where we have a data dictionary of quality mm. measures uh, that can be standardized across the field. And so, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of uh, smarter people than I am, but that are working on this together yeah. To, yeah. to really try to come up with some of those measures of, of what really matters most to people. And yeah. I think uh, we'll, we'll see down the road some caregiver measures in there as well, yeah. which I think the field needs. No, abs absolutely. And I, I think that, um, you know, what, 
and why hospice lawyers exist is, you know, as we, because these things that you're talking about, they don't happen like this. It's not an overnight thing. Like, okay, we have that conversation. I'm sure, you know, you're all good now, right? right? And so, as an industry, something that we've really tried to do is get people to call us earlier so we can have a greater impact. And so, but, and even though, you know, median average lengths of stay are well below, you know, a six month prognosis, you know, what have we seen? Oh, well, you're doing something wrong because people are living longer. And, and, but, but again, if the measure is a good death, are we, assuring better deaths to people who we can serve for a longer period of time. Because as you said, these psychosocial existential kind of challenges that people have to make, you know, a good death, take some time to work themselves out, you know, to really, if the measure of, of the overarching goal is a good death, like how long does that take to do? I mean, sometimes yeah, we don't have do it in a week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and, and I'm one of those who truly believes that by getting that comprehensive care in there, we actually do change people's trajectory, right? People live longer. We know that from certain studies and certain types of cancer and heart failure and COPD, hospice care has been shown to increase length of stay by almost a month. And yeah. so, you know, and then we get to the point that people are doing well without supportive care, and then we have to take it away mm -hmm. uh, because maybe they have a prognosis that's has now gone to where we think it's longer than six months. So it, it is, it's really difficult um, when you're yeah. going to have to discharge patients because of that. But um, that's the reality we live in. And I, I, I definitely understand it. Yeah, no. And I think that, that as you're talking about palliative care, I mean, getting out of the six month prognosis box and, and focusing more on, you know, helping. Need the care. Yeah, yeah right, right. exactly. Identifying people with serious illness who need care. And, um, and, you know, what, what surprised me uh, in our big CMI, the CMS innovation grant that we yeah. got, uh, we ran for three years. What surprised me was that about 35% of the patients we saw in palliative care actually were discharged. So they got, they came out of the hospital, maybe they got put in our care and they got better. And we were able to discharge them back into mainstream medicine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think this concept that palliative care is just for the dying um, uh, needs to be broadened. And, you know, it, it, it is challenging because you have to define eligibility when you have a product usually or who you're, who, what, what is, who is the patient you're going to identify uh, for palliative care. Um, so generally, you know, I, I fall on Amy Kelly's definition, which defines a high risk of mortality, but also that has palliative care needs and or caregiver needs. And I think mm -hmm. um, when we expand the definition that way, sometimes we come in, we help them through a situation and then we back off. It, yeah. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, I was surprised that our discharge rate was that high, but I'm seeing that in some other uh, organizations as well. And so we don't always know who's going to die when yeah. we see them. Yeah. And if they get better, that's fantastic. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, we did. We, we did good, right? If, if the measure is, you right. know, relieving suffering and, and, and that's the measure, that's our goal is to relieve suffering. 
we met that goal, whether or not, you know, um, the person died or had the good fortune to live much longer. I mean, we still did something that the rest of healthcare doesn't do right now. And that's why I think is, you know, palliative care gets upstream and that we have so much value to add. And obviously we know how to manage through budget. We get, we're used to getting paid a capitated rate. I mean, all of that stuff. I mean, we have so much to share, but I, I think it's, it's also, we have to accept like, right. We're used to doing our own little thing and everyone ignores us in the corner. And like, you're the woohoo people that talk about mystery and, and the unexplained and um, all this stuff. But we have so many important things and value to add. And because some of the things that we're talking about, again, in, in terms of dollars and cents to provide this is, is peanuts compared to, you know, the things that, that, you know, the healthcare system, you know, shells out for, you know, all getting a whatever. defibrillator, getting yeah. put on dialysis for it. Yeah. 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 So, um, so I think we have a very compelling story, but we got to package it in a way. And I think what you said is exactly right is to, to break through that, we need to have data and we need to have quality metrics and we need to be able to say, and we can measure this. It's not just like, hey, people feel good, right? And not that it's like quantifying what feeling good means. Like that's still a good objective, right? We want to make people feel good, but like, how is it that we measure that? And I think that, that as you say, it's the evolution of our industry and it's like, you know, we're all probably... Um, way too anxious right like things need to change quickly like if i don't see it and if this is a long um a long lifespan of of the palliative care story that that will go on you know before and after you know we're you and i are gone i mean hopefully that you know this is it's going to be transformed in many different ways and and um you know i think my personal interest is sort of in this societal relationship to, to death and, and is it a, a possible and worthy goal that, that if we can get more comfortable with dying, we can live better lives and be happier. Cause I think that, you know, um, there's a lot of different spiritual traditions that, that, that play with this endings and doing endings. Well, right. Every day, we have an ending. If it's like you and I are going to stop this podcast and there's a moment, there's a transition moment, there's something ended and something new is beginning. And the more you live that, I mean, it's in sort of Buddhist tradition, the Bardos and, you know, other traditions sort of talk about endings. And, and I just think we need to do endings probably better. And if you know how to do endings better and how you live, I think that then maybe, because I really think about that, I want people to live happy lives, you know, and uh, coming back full circle is you die how you live. And if we can help people live better, happier existence, which doesn't mean there isn't going to be suffering, right? Because it's like life is about dealing with suffering, right? I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. And so, so I, I just think as we close here, you know, the, the, the wisdom of, you know, and pondering that question on a daily basis is I'm going to die about how I, 
you know, how I die is going to be how I live. And the story you told about that patient is, I think that we need to, to live with that. And if there can be, you know, something, hopefully many good things will, will come out of this pandemic, which is, you know, just very difficult, but, but that there is uncertainty in life and it doesn't, <laughs> the goal shouldn't be to make things certain, right? Cause it's just never going to happen, but it's like, can you live in that uncertainty and like embrace what that is? Like I, you know, might not see the sunset again, but like, this is so miraculous right now, instead of like wanting more and more, like I want as much as I can, can get. Um, so yeah. Well, I can't remember that one Buddhist teacher said, oh, it's today the day, every day. Oh, it's today yeah. the day. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do think it it is hard, I will say, to live with the reality of death at every moment. Yeah, totally. It, it is very, very hard to do that. And I, I you know, um, so, but it, but stating that, if we could have the framework, and I, you know, to me, this is one of the, one of the gifts of meditation, yeah. is that it gives you a time, and and for others, it's prayer or whatever, but it gives yeah. you a time of where there's no noise and no distraction, and trying to get in that space of space, yeah, right, um, that it puts perspective on the day on yeah. how you live your life and i think you know to me that's that's something that kind of anchors me uh that i think is helpful but but i totally agree if we mm-hmm. did a better job with how we die we would look better yeah no exactly and and i i think along those same lines um i i read uh stoic philosophy i i find it is a really helpful framework for living um because it's very practical um and and it's crazy because you're reading things from like bc and you're like this is <laughs> this is crazy how is it so relevant and so a quote that seneca says is life is long if you live it and it just is like but i i you know if you really take that in it's like if you're living your moments right and, and i agree with you it's not like you can just be consumed by I'm going to die. And I mean, I think I, death seems somewhat theoretical to me in some respects. Like, I mean, I think you can only, but in so much, but I, I think that as you say, death denying doesn't serve us necessarily well either. And so, you know, the dance we do with um, both being in the moment, but obviously still having hopes and dreams. And like, I hope I have many years to live and, you know, being my, my artist self and do more of all the, the creative things I love to do. Cause I, by middle age, you're starting being like, I don't have like eternity, right? I mean, you just start asking yourself different questions. And, and one of those is a sense of urgency about the things I want to do and experience in the world. And, and, and for me, creativity is really important, but also like, this podcast and I just, you know, really appreciate this conversation. It's really, you know, moving to, to me, but also like, this is the work I sort of feel like I've been meant to do. Like who knew 20 years ago, like I meet Mary Michael and like, she's saying like, Hey, I ran this hospice and I really think, you know, I want to develop a 
legal practice in this area. And I'm, you know, and I'm 25 thinking, okay, I'll help. And then like, you know, but you like, again, this mystery, right? Like, how did my path cross? And, and then, you know, there's different choices I made along the way. And it just is like, but this is like, totally what I meant to do. Like, I feel like I am living and that, you know, me being a lawyer has allowed me to have these opportunities to talk to people who are really, I mean, how many people do you find that want to talk about these issues? <laughs> They're just, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I hear you. I think the synchronicity comes to all of us. It's just mm-hmm. when we, when we listen to it, when yeah. we react to it, when we understand and my life has been, uh, you know, it, it's, so interesting my path and it's you know I get connected to people and I connect other people and I just feel like that synchronicity happens all the time yeah no exactly it's it's so cool to watch it you know it's just so cool to be a a part of it okay yeah no yeah the the wonder is if you pay attention because it's like (laughs) I mean it almost feels tripping when you're like when you start paying attention and it's like when the daffodil daffodils come up in spring, you're like, how do they know how to get up? There's like, it's still dark and cold, but it's like they grow from the, I mean, it's just like, and just the being in wonder, I think uh, of the world and um, it, which I think just comes from paying attention and, and seeing, as you said, the synchronicity that, that surrounds us. And um, you know, cause there's, so much goodness I think in the world and sort of magic and in ways that we can, you know, be with one another and really um, make a difference in, in walking the path with people. Cause I think that the world has a lot of suffering and, and uh, not feeling alone and is incredibly important. And however you have that community. And so, so you are an important part of like my community and this has been a great conversation because I, you know, just being able to share these thoughts uh, with someone because I spend lots of time pondering the, these issues. And so, um, so really, really appreciate your time and um, a lot of fun. So, so thank you. Thanks for listening to today's conversation. I also want to extend a heartfelt thanks to my colleague and friend, Joe Diedrich, for our beautiful music. Joe is not only a wonderful lawyer, but a talented composer. He kindly shared his original song, Lolo, for use in our podcast. May we all find ways to share and celebrate our creative gifts with the world. Onward.